business of money and politics is deadly dull to most people, and almost purposely so. It's an area that's sort of governed by lawyers and accountants and these abstruse laws, and all of that means that the public can't really follow it. And so my job, I felt, was to try to explain to people who's behind this, whose money is it, what do they want, how do they hide it, and how do they buy power and influence. From the recent US midterm elections to the sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh, veteran Washington-based journalist Jane Mayer has been especially busy of recent. A staff writer at The New Yorker since 1995, Mayer was previously a foreign correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, subsequently becoming the paper's first female Washington correspondent in 1984. Mayer has also published numerous investigative books. Her 2016 bestseller Dark Money looks at the billionaire right-wing family clans such as the Cokes and Olins that she argues are covertly financing a takeover of American politics. She has also co-authored Strange Justice, a book with Jill Abramson covering the sexual allegations made against Justice Clarence Thomas by Anita Hill. She's also the recipient of numerous accolades, including the George Polk Prize and Frances Perkins Prize for Courage. I'm Ed Stocker and I spoke to Jane Mayer in her hometown of Washington, D.C. Well, Jane Mayer, an absolute pleasure to have you in front of me here in the studio in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. I think my first question really is, you know, you've been based in Washington for a while. Does the current environment feel different or is it the same sort of transactional place it's always been? No, it's definitely different right now. I think of myself as a New Yorker, but I've actually been in Washington since Ronald Reagan's presidency. I came in 1984. And so it's become more and more corrupt in Washington. It's not been a steady direction that way, but money has played a bigger and bigger role. And we're at the nadir of my time here. (laughs) So it's gotten quite a bit worse recently. I mean, I wanted to talk about that. Obviously, you know, you published your Dark Money book, but also we've just recently had the midterm elections, which I believe were the most expensive in history. Is this ever going to change? Are we going to reach a sort of ceiling of money in politics or is it just going to keep spiralling like this? Well, I mean, I wish I knew, but I do think that if the past is prologue, it will change because America's gone through other cycles like this of corruption where money has just gotten to kind of a point where it's just too embarrassing and too disgusting to most of the public, and then they rise up and demand change. So that happened in in the United States in the 1880s and 90s, and we got our first campaign finance rules right after the turn of the century. And it happened again after Watergate and the big scandal of the Nixon years. And we got very strong and very good campaign finance laws. But the thing about money is it's like water. It just finds its way. So you just have to keep pushing back against it. Okay. I mean, I definitely want to talk about that more as the chat evolves. But I want to rewind a little bit or go back. Do you think, you know, you shattered in a way the glass ceiling when you were at the Wall Street Journal before the New Yorker, becoming the first female Washington correspondent. And 
did you feel you had to act differently or do something because of that? Well, I was a pathbreaker for the Wall Street Journal, being the first woman they had covering the White House. But in truth, the Wall Street Journal was quite a ways behind a number of other organizations. I mean, I I worked with some fantastic women who'd been way ahead of me, Helen Thomas for the Associated Press and Leslie Stahl at CBS and Andrea Mitchell at NBC. I mean, these were unbelievable women. So they'd kind of kicked down the walls with their high heels ahead of me and I came prancing through in a pretty easy way. Do you think it sort of motivated at all some of the reports and some of the investigations you've done that have held men to account quite rightly? Oh, sure. That's an area actually where there's Well, I'd like to think there's been some improvement. When I came to Washington right almost right after university, there were very few women, particularly women reporters covering what were considered men's beats. And there was a lot of sexism. Women were said not to be able to cover things like arms control because the math was too hard for us. I mean, it was ridiculous. So so things have gotten better, but it's been over my lifetime watching some of this. And obviously, there's still a long way to go, which is what we're learning from these Me Too stories every day. Yeah, do you think that's just going to keep continuing, the Me Too stories? I think there's a bit of a backlash that we've seen recently, which is, we, you know, the, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court suggests that part of the country here really does not like this kind of Me Too movement and wants to kind of stake out its territory. So you saw a big pushback against the women who brought allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, and the Republican Party railroaded him through and stuck him on the court very fast. Well, that's Donald Trump saying it's a dangerous time to be a young man in America at the moment. Right. He's he's rallying his base with how what victims white males are in this country, which is, it's laughable to anybody else, but it works for him. Well, you did mention that the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation drama and the fact that you were covering it heavily for The New Yorker. Were you surprised that Deborah Ramirez's story or her testimony didn't lead to bigger repercussions, I guess. Yeah, I think I was kind of. I mean, people have said that reporters are the last naives, and we are a little bit in that even the people who are considered hard-bitten, like investigative reporters, kind of secretly believe that good is going to happen and that good will come from the work that we do. And that's why we do it. And so I thought when we had a woman who was a classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's at Yale, on the record, come out and describe her personal experience and say that she really felt that people needed to take it into account. I thought they would take it into account. Instead, they just shoved her out of the way as fast as they could get her out of the way and did everything they could to try to make her seem like she lacked credibility and standing. And how does it make you feel when that happens, when, you know, you present a case, nothing changes? Do you end up feeling that there's nothing good in this world and there's too much impunity. What's your immediate reaction? Well, my immediate reaction after after that particular story was, first I got really sick. So I think it was just, um, I came down with, you know, one of those lousy colds. And I Kavanaugh think that cold. it was the Kavanaugh cough I was thinking oh, of it yes. as. And so I think I kind of collapsed personally for, at least for a few days. And then I began thinking, huh, 
I know there's some strands here that I never followed up, and we're not done with this story yet. So, you know, I kind of think, I actually truly believe the truth comes out over time. It catches up with people. And I don't know whether it'll make any difference in this particular case, but I'm kind of determined to still get the story out. I mean, just kind of... There's more, in other words. There is more. There is more. Is there a juicy scoop to come? Yes, I think there is. Really? Yeah. So you're preparing something? I'll get there, I hope. (laughs) I mean, just preparing for this interview and, you know, just reading up, it just surprised me how the world has moved on from Kavanaugh, how scary it is at this news cycle that seems to have been generated by the Donald Trump White House means something as momentous as that confirmation hearing. Almost feels like old news, even though it wasn't that long ago. Does that worry you? As someone in D.C. and as a journalist, how quickly people seem to be moving on. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the attention span is so shortened now because of the way news is delivered by Twitter and whatever else. You know, it used to be, you know, you would try to maybe win the week at The New Yorker and with a great breaking story that would be in our weekly magazine. Now people talk about, you know, not even winning the day, they're winning the morning or they're winning the 11 a.m. hour or whatever. There's just stuff breaking every second. And I don't really know how the public can make sense out of anything when it's coming at you so fast. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. You know, we're trying to inform people so that they can make sensible decisions and understand the world that they're living in and and, and hold people accountable. And you can't hold them accountable if nobody remembers what happened yesterday morning. So it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, what implications does that have for the sort of long-form, deep-dive investigative journalism that you do? I think one of the problems for it is that it means you have to try to capture people's attention and they are incredibly distracted right now. But I think it's also in some ways an opportunity, and I feel this has been true for a while of even the books I've done, which is that what happens is the public's getting all of this fragmented information in tiny little bits. And they can't make sense of it because it's coming at them too fast. So if you can take time away, like as a reporter, sit down and put it all together in a narrative that tells a story and helps people understand it and explains that there are characters and there are, you know, there's plot twists and there's a backstory that the public's not seeing a lot of the time. If you can put it all in one place, which is what we try to do with New Yorker stories and even more so with books, I actually think it performs a real service. But the hat trick then is trying to get readers to notice and read it. And they do. A lot of them do. I mean, not everybody, but I think people still love a story that makes sense. I mean, you talked about money in politics and how Washington has changed in that regard. Also, you have a president talking about the press as the enemy of the people and, you know, Jim Acosta being refused entry to the White House, as it were. How does that affect you and your job? Have you found more hostility or more difficulty working your sources than before? Yeah. I mean, it's really strange. Long ago, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I did a stint reporting 
in eastern Germany behind the wall, behind the Berlin Wall at that period. And everybody I interviewed was so paranoid about being seen as providing information. It was like this, you felt like you were in a spy novel when you were interviewing people. And it's beginning to feel a little bit more like that in Washington. It's really strange. Um, Sources are afraid to be seen talking to you. They don't even want to talk over the regular phones. You know, everybody's using these kind of apps like Signal and other things. Or even if it's really sensitive, I mean, I've had people have cutouts get a hold of me and say, so-and-so wants to talk to you and I'm reaching out to you on their behalf. Can you meet so-and-so at a bookstore at such and such an hour? So it has a kind of a John le Carré feel to it a little bit because there is such hostility to the press, particularly the press that might be getting really important national secrets. I mean, obviously, you've penned many articles on your own, but you've also recently often been collaborating with Ronan Farrow, for example, the piece that brought down former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. How did that relationship evolve in the first place? Was that bringing together through The New Yorker or was it you two deciding to work on pieces together? I guess it was kind of an arranged marriage. We didn't really actually know each other very much, even though we're on the same magazine, because I'm in Washington and Ronan's in New York. And so I was working away on this story about the women who had allegations against Eric Schneiderman. And it was difficult to make the women feel comfortable and want to stay on the record moving forward. There is a very emotionally draining thing that the women were facing. And the one person at The New Yorker who truly understands how to do these stories is Ronan Farrow. I mean, he, he's kind of a genius at hand-holding, explaining the process of going public to these women. There's a reason he won the Pulitzer Prize for this kind of coverage. He's great at it. And I hadn't done that much of that kind of reporting. I'd covered the Anita Hill hearings many years before. So we, you know, sort of cry for help, brought in Ronan, who sat down with some of the women who were having second thoughts and were not sure about going public. And as soon as they spent a little time with him, they were completely on board. He was amazing. I want to return to this subject of money in politics because it has been such an important part of your career. And I also want to return briefly to the midterms. I wanted to know whether you thought, and perhaps it's different because it's much more visible, but do you think Democrats have caught up with Republicans when it comes to the money game? We saw some candidates in these recent midterms who absolutely smashed records for fundraising. Yeah, and you've got some Democratic candidates who raised more than the Republicans did, which is unusual. Certainly the Democrats are trying to catch up, but if you take a look at the top donors in this past midterm election, for the most recent numbers I saw, the single person who put the most money into the midterm races was Sheldon Adelson, who is a casino magnate from Las Vegas, and he put in something like $113 million. This is in disclosed donations, not even talking about dark money. The next nearest big donor was Tom Steyer. So the next one was a Democrat, but he put in 51 million as opposed to 113 million. He's a uh, former finance guy and a big environmentalist. So there's still a gap. 
if you took a look at the top three Democratic donors to the midterms and put their donations together, they're still less than the single largest Republican donor. That is, again, Sheldon Adelson. So the more of the biggest donors are on the Republican side. But again, this is disclosed money. And what I've yeah. been writing about was secret For money. Sure. Yeah, I mean, talking about secret money, I mean, obviously your book, Dark Money, was the follow-on from Covert Operations, an article that appeared in The New Yorker. What first got you interested in this as a subject matter? Well, I'm a New Yorker, and I was walking around the corner near Lincoln Center and saw David H. Koch's name carved into the side of it. And there's a term now they call for rich people who've put their names on buildings. They call it billionaire graffiti. And at any rate, there it was. And I was thinking, ha, huh, that's funny. You know, he's got his name on the building, but he never takes credit for the money that he's sticking into politics secretly. And I knew because I was following the money that the Cokes and their operation was putting a ton of money into the Tea Party. And I sort of thought, why don't I just show not just the money that they're proud to take a bow for putting in, but the secret money they're putting into the country. And a lot of it was fighting Obama, that money. It was stirring up a lot of hate against Obama. And I felt most people in New York had no idea that the same person was funding both these things. Yeah, exactly. So is this money, for example, for Lincoln Center, they also, I think it's David, tell me if I'm wrong, or Coke Industries underwrites public radio as well. Is this sort of a public face, yeah. a more presentable face that they like to have? Yeah. I mean, and so more power to them as they put money into things like trying to cure cancer, but then they don't let anybody know that they're also fighting laws that might try to stop the kind of pollution that gives people cancer. And it's their own factories that are pumping toxic stuff into the environment. Anyway, so I just felt that it was a matter of trying to hold these enormously powerful people to account for the entire picture of what they're doing with their money. I mean, I'm in awe of the, the detail in the book, which I actually just finished a couple of days Congratulations. ago. <laughs> I mean, maybe you can give listeners an idea of the sheer volume of work involved. I think it took you five years. And also the resistance that you received in a way, I believe you talked about a boiler room operation that was mounted against you at one point. How difficult was it writing this book in more than one sense? Well, I mean, part of the challenge was getting the information because these are a lot of secrets and these are things that very powerful people don't want the public to know. But another part of the challenge was just making it a story that people could understand. The business of money in politics is deadly dull to most people, and almost purposely so. It's an area that's sort of governed by lawyers and accountants and these abstruse laws. And all of that means that the public can't really follow it. And so my job, I felt, was to try to explain to people who's behind this? Whose money is it? What do they want? How do they hide it? And how do they buy power and influence? And and how do you make that interesting to people? I thought part of it was to explain who these characters were. And they all have these unbelievable stories. I mean, mostly... I know, they're like pantomime villains. They, I mean, it's, like a, the, it's like a soap opera they, at times. I, I couldn't believe some of the stuff I was learning about them. And these are families. It's a handful of families. It's not that many people who have this much kind of power and influence in American politics. And 
they tend to be kind of dynasties. So I wanted to tell the family stories of them too. And it turned out, oh, you know, they'd have four sons in the Koch family and they'd split in teams of two and they fought each other bitterly for 20 years in the courts and they hired private eyes to dig into the dirt against each other. I mean, it was like such a soap opera. So I wanted to get all of that across to people. And so it was a challenge, but it was also kind of fun. But as you say, some of it wasn't fun. Their backlash against me was um, scary. Has there been anything since then, or was just that sort of one incident or one moment? So what happened was it took me a long time to understand it and put it together, but I finally got enough sources and information to be able to know for sure what happened was that the Cokes hired a private eye who then dug for dirt in my own life. And I thought when I first heard sort of rumors of this that I was invulnerable because there really wasn't much that I thought I had done that would be disgraceful beyond the usual sort of overdue library book here and there. But it turned out that they were able to sort of fabricate some stuff, and they tried to frame me for being a plagiarist, and yeah. it turned out not to hold up. So thank goodness it wasn't true, and I was able to sort of prove that, and they kind of curled up and went away. And I think they really, they've had to back off since. The book is very carefully documented and lawyered, so it's, it's stood up to an awful lot of pressure. But obviously, a lot of the protagonists didn't help you with the book. Did that make your job much harder? Yes, it was. I certainly tried to get interviews with all the important people in it, and um, a number of them didn't want to talk to me. But, but in a way, it sort of then inspires you to be more creative with how you're going to get the story. Then, and I found the sort of the renegade members of the family and the household help, and even people who've never been revealed to have been sources who are in the universe and quite close into these people became. Some of them became incredible sources and kept texting me updates when they'd, you know, it, it was great, but it, it was a challenge. I'm interested to talk about the relationship between Donald Trump and the Cokes. Trump has had his billionaire backers like the Mercers, but he's often, in a way, disparaged the Cokes. He said things about them very publicly. And yet, at the same time, he seems to be implementing a lot of the policies that the Cokes and those other billionaires on the right might be happy about. For example, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, in your book, you referred to him as being called the congressman from Coke in the past, and he's now in a position of extreme power. Betsy DeVos from the Amway clan is Education Secretary. The EPA has been highly restricted. The US has left Paris. All these things seem to be the fulfilment of many of the things detailed in your book. So is this in a way, a Coke presidency. I mean, one of the major players from the Coke world is our vice president, Mike Pence, whose entire career was nurtured and funded by the Cokes from an early stage. And so much so that even Steve Bannon said to me, and, and I quoted him in a piece I did about Pence, he said he'd be afraid to have Pence be president because he'd be worried that he's a, be a president owned by the Cokes. So I think what you see in Trump is that... When he took power, 
he had no experience, right, in government or politics, really. I was a businessman, and there was kind of a vacuum to fill. And that vacuum was filled by the forces in the Republican Party who really did know how to take power, and those are the Kochs. So the Kochs, and they're, they have a kind of a private political machine almost. Their people just rushed in and filled in many, many of the key slots in the Trump administration. So Trump turned around and looks up and finds himself more or less surrounded by Koch apparatchiks in many ways, including his vice president. So do you think it is the ultimate capitulation? Do you think finally the Kochs and all the others have what they wanted? Do they have an iron grip or the presidency? Or is Donald Trump uh, so unpredictable that it's impossible to say that? I think more the latter. I mean, the thing is what the Kochs have, I mean, they've succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in terms of having been able to shape the policies that matter most to them, particularly environmental policies, because they're a huge fossil fuel company. And they've the EPA is exactly doing just what they've always wished would happen and getting out of the climate accords. And all these things are exactly what they've always wanted. Same with our tax policy. They've just cut taxes on the, the top, top, top people like the Kochs, which is just also just a dream come true for them. But what they were hoping in 2016... They had $889 million that they were going to put into that race with their group of fellow funders in order to try to buy the presidency. And the one Republican contender that they didn't really feel comfortable with was Donald Trump, and he was the one who got the nomination. So by the time they were ready to spend, they waited too long. The nominee was somebody who who they didn't love. And the problem, I think, as much as anything is, as you say, Trump's not really dependable. He's a force of that is in his own orbit. And he's not an ideologue like they are. He's not a neoliberal necessarily. He's whatever he needs to be at any given moment to get what he wants that day. And so it's it's just he's not a reliable vassal to them, though many of the people in his administration are and many of the policies have lined up with what they want. I mean, nevertheless, you know, a lot of these people have helped bring the Republicans back to power. What do you think that the left needs to do to counter this? Does it need to try and replicate something similar? What path does the left take in order to sort of try and get back into power and get the upper hand that it's lost? Well, I mean, because I write a lot about money, I think at the end of the day, the laws that govern money in this country have got to be changed if you're really going to see change. Because the problem is that Congress has been pretty much captured right now. And so... Due to Citizens United. Due to After Citizens United, there's really only one explanation available for why it is that the entire world is trying to do something about global warming, except for the United States Congress. And it's moving in the opposite direction. It's denying science. Well, the only reason that can be is because the fossil fuel industry is pouring money in and keeping the Republican Party from doing something about climate change. So you can see the problem here, and it's going to take reform of those laws And one of the first things that the Democrats have introduced and say they will introduce as soon as they take over the House of Representatives is a package of bills to reform democracy and particularly fix the money situation here. Though there are a lot of people paying attention to it. And the one promising thing is the public's demanding it at this point. And so corruption's risen as an issue. 
I don't know if it's risen far enough that it will be able to overcome the interests in Congress. That's what it's going to take. The pendulum's swinging in that direction, but I don't know. That's what I'm watching. I mean, following day in, day out, everything that's happening in Washington, D.C., do you ever think, I've had enough, I can't take this corruption anymore, I can't take what's happening, I need a break, or it it spurns you on? No, I mean, I I think you'd have to be inhuman to not have it get to you a little bit. And so my husband and I sort of think, huh, is it time to, like, find a place in the country and get a few more dogs and maybe even a horse would be nice. But but then the thing is, there's really no place you can go. Also, we need your voice. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that. But, um, you know, we do sort of think every now and then, God, we just bang our heads against the wall. But then the thing is... We're not ready to leave it yet, and it's too much of an emergency right now also. But I look forward to the days when you can sort of say, oh, it's gotten boring again, and now I can do something else. Jane May, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. My many, many thanks to Jane Mayer. The Big Interview is produced by Yelene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin and Bill Lutie. I'm Ed Stocker. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>